You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey folks, great to have you back to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Friedemann. Remember now, the place for a man or a woman completing all their powers is in the fight, in the spiritual fight, in the discipleship fight. And right now today saying, hey, with my life, I want to make disciples of the nations. So stay tuned and stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks. So very good to have you with us today. And I want to say thank you for those of you who listened to last week when we talked about intimacy. We're going to do part two of that today. Just It's a, it's a series that we're doing at my church on... Uh, we, we, we have something on Wednesday nights called Day Spring. That's the name of my church, Day Spring University. And so I'm just, uh, I'm really enjoying getting into some mm-hmm. of these topics that we can go at a deeper level and we're typically asking uh, seminary professors and the like to come in and do these presentations. So in the summer, I decided, well, let me take a whack at it. So uh, I'm doing a little series on intimacy and it's been really, really, really precious. Uh, we're going to get to that here in just a minute. Let me just say, I saw an article on Christianity Today this week that just fascinated me. And it says, we went, but did we make disciples? And it talked about missionaries who'd, who have been going to uh, places, you know, to say, hey, let's go. Let's do everything we can to win people to Jesus Christ. But the question was, did we really establish disciple-making disciples in that country when we had left? And the answer is, too often, no, we haven't. And I will just say, it's important, y'all, that we make disciples. Now, one of the things we do on this broadcast is say, let's try to find a method by which this might be achievable. And so what we've come up with on this program is the five Q method of discipleship. It's basically five questions that we get together and we ask one another. We open up to some scriptural passage and in a group we say, hey, what's the Holy Spirit saying to us here? What's some insights? And so there's not really a group leader, but a group facilitator saying, hey, what's scripture say? Then we ask the question number two, how can we adore the God that seems to be coming out of the scripture into our faces, into our lives right now? And so we adore that God and we take turns praying prayers of adoration. Then we say, hey, how can we give testimony to the truth that's coming out of the scripture right now and give him thanks? And so we have a time of testimony of thanksgiving. Then we say, finally, all right, we've seen what scripture said. We've worshiped him. We've given testimony to it. But how do we need to change to stay faithful to the message of this passage of scripture for our lives? And uh, we all set down something that we want to be held accountable for next week that we're going to go out and do something measurable, something behavioral, and just go out there and get her done. And so that becomes a change part of this thing. And then finally, we just pray for one another. How can we pray for one another? It might be the change dynamic we want to pray for, but it might be something else that came up during this meeting. But one of us prays for another one of us, and we just go around the circle doing that. However, there is the other side of the card. And the other side of the card is, all right, 
So we've gone through this meeting with the five questions, but we always got to keep in mind the works of piety and the works of mercy. Now, these two categories together are called the means of grace. We want grace to be all over our lives, pouring into our lives, raining on us, flooding our lives. We want it to be leaving our lives and other people's lives. So the works of piety are simply this, prayer, daily prayer, daily scripture reading, uh, receiving the Lord's Supper, weekly fasting, and getting into large and small groups called Christian conferencing, but basically it's saying, I want to be a part of a church group. I want to be a part of a disruption group. At least that, if not more. Those are the works of piety. But then they're the works of mercy. And that's stuff like, I need a weekly ministry that goes out and does something like feed the hungry, clothe the naked, uh, visit those who are in prison or who are sick, uh, educating, doing something to and for on behalf of the needy in our communities. And those works of piety, plus the works of mercy, plus this 5Q method of discipleship creates powerful, powerful disciples. I want you to go to amazon.com and get this book. I think you will love it. I think you'll be nurtured by it. And I think it'll put you in a better position than ever of making responsible disciples who, by the way, will then be able to take this method and make disciples. We each have a card that we have in front of our faces. I'm holding it in my hand right now. And on one side of the card are the five questions. On the back side of the card are those works of piety and the works of mercy. Those three dynamics together, the meeting, the works of piety, the works of mercy, create strong disciples that, by the way, will be able to turn around and make other disciples. I had a guy just yesterday say, hey, I want to thank you for that 5Q method because let me tell you what's doing in my congregation right now. It, it's just proliferating. It's going everywhere. People are inviting in. And by the way, people are noticing and wanting to come to our church now because we have a method that actually changes people's lives, transforms them into serious disciple-making disciples. And I just want to thank you. I said, well, I'm just glad we came up with the thing. I'm glad you're using it. Way to go. I'm just, friends, it works. Go to Amazon.com. Go anywhere you possibly can to get this book, The 5Q Method of Discipleship, Five Questions That Will Change Your Life, written by yours truly, Matt Friedman. And I think you will love it. You'll appreciate it. It might just change your life, might change the life of your family, might change the life of your local church, and who knows where else it can go. I know right now it's, it's in plenty of places dozens and dozens and dozens of churches in Mexico. It's in dozens, if not hundreds of churches in Africa, and it's spreading throughout other continents. Y'all, the 5Q method of discipleship, I think you're going to love it. Now, having said that, I just thought this was an interesting article by Christianity Today. I would give the author some credit, but it didn't even have an author. I think it was just an editorial that was handed down by their editorial board. But I appreciate the fact that they recognize if you haven't made disciples, then you really haven't ministered to the level that God wants you to minister. And that is a great emphasis. Now, we're talking here. This is week two for our intimacy with God uh, emphasis. And last week, we covered this nuptial, this marriage metaphor in Scripture that begins in Eden and ends with Revelation, begins in the New Testament at the wedding in Cana, and ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb. Ultimately, what we see is Jesus as the bridegroom. 
and we, the church, are his bride. Now that's intimacy. Bridegroom and bride stuff, do you get more intimate than that? And God says, that's the kind of intimacy I want with you. I want you to see yourselves in a marriage with me, and I want you to work on this relationship. I am. I want you to work on it. And I'm going to give you the grace that we might have a closer, more intimate walk. So we're going to leave that there and move on to two other interesting perspectives, the Song of Songs and the woman at the well. So much scholarship today says the Song of Songs. I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever read it? Um, it's, it's more than interesting. It's like, wow. It's understood as a poem about human sensual love, the passionate love between a man and a woman. But in ancient Jewish traditions, it was primarily interpreted as an allegory of God's spousal love for the people of Israel. It was much more, for most of Christian history, much more than a popular love song. And Jewish and even Christian interpreters have said particularly in the last century, it's, it's basically two lovers. I want to go and split the difference. I want to say, yeah, it's about two lovers. But can we learn from those two lovers in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon? Can we learn from those two lovers about what our relationship with God ought to be like? And I think we can. So just some general principles here uh, from the Song of Songs for intimacy with God. Generally speaking, this, number one, these two people, uh, they're utterly captivated with one another. I mean, they can't wait to be with one another. So should our relationship with God be. We ought to be utterly, he, he, by the way, he's utterly captivated with us. Should we be utterly captivated with him? And the answer to this course is yeah. And anticipating him and wanting and desiring to spend more time with him. And by the way, wanting and anticipating his second coming. Do we anticipate, are we utterly captivated with this God? And by the way, some of us will say, not really. We need to pray <laughs> that he will give us the grace of utter captivation, <laughs> of, of utter anticipation. Oh, we want to be with him. Second, the second principle is this. These two lovers are on the hunt for one another. I mean, <laughs> they're not just saying, hey, I hope he shows up, hope she shows up. No, I'm after her. I'm after him. Intimacy means pursuit. How might it be said that we are pursuing God today? Are we? And if you are, how could you do it even more? Just real quick, write down three ways that you might pursue God even more aggressively today and go do those things. I think to know and be known seems to underline this whole romance, to know and be known. Now, remember, in the last podcast, we talked about this great Hebrew word, yada. It means more than brain knowledge, more than cognitive knowledge. It means to experience and to encounter. So have I really experienced and encountered God today? Am I passionately trying to know him now, no means we're in a, try, trying to experience and encounter him to love him even better. And I think that's a great question again to ask. Do we really, yada, God, experience him, encounter him? Now, if you'll read the Song of Songs, you'll notice there's a lot of garden imagery, just lots of garden kind of plant type stuff. 
And I think one of the principles there is, let's get back to the garden. (laughs) Some scholars say the reason it comes up so much is it's hearkening us back to the Garden of Eden. When we had perfect fellowship with each other, we had perfect fellowship with God. Now, perfect has all kinds of connotations, but complete fellowship, wholesome fellowship, all that God wants from us fellowship, and to always go deeper in that fellowship. Um, words of adoration for others' beauty is a great principle. I think we need to verbally and lavishly praise and thank God all the time. We ought to delight ourselves in the enjoyment of God. How precisely can we do that? Well, there's an old Jewish teaching that you ought to have 100 thanksgivings today of God. And I was 100 things you give thanks for. Big things, small things. Give thanks to God for your husband, for your wife. But also give him thanks for the green of the grass and the green of the leaves. Thank, uh, I'm just looking around. Thank, thank God for that wood that comes from that plant over there, from that tree over there. Thank God for uh, my wife's cooking. Thank God for the children that my wife has given to me. Name them one by one. In other words, a hundred times a day, lavishly praise him lavishly thank him. Just that there alone begins changing your attitude about God and changing your attitude. A lot of us have things like anger problem, irritation problem, which is all the time ticked off. It's hard to stay ticked off when you're lavishing, praising, and thanking God. And by the way, it improves your relationship with him. We ought to delight ourselves in our enjoyment of God. And then this, Loneliness and isolation. If you look back at Psalm uh, 5-6, you can be lonely and isolated and feel isolated even in the best of intimate relationships. During those times, love can grow cold and barriers can arise. I'm thinking right now of uh, St. John of the Cross who talked about these times where he just felt alone. He just felt apart from God. And when he wrote it down and committed it to paper, people read it and thought, you know, that dark night of the soul he's talking about, I felt that too. So y'all, you're going to go through it. You're going to feel like, hey, I'm doing everything right. And yet I don't feel like he's out there. I don't sense that he's near. Well, he is. He's out there. He's nearby. He's closer to you than you are yourselves. But listen, in intimate relationships, sometimes, even then, loneliness and isolation, feelings of loneliness and isolation can overcome you. What happens there is you need to renew your love and refresh your romance. Be honest with God. Communicate with Him. And guess what? You'll finally have this breakthrough. I just say, y'all, there's so many wonderful principles. I, I really suggest that you read the Song of Solomon. And just say, okay, if I'm reading this between two lovers, how could these two lovers inform me about what my relationship with God ought to be like? And most Jews and most Christians prior to this century pretty much thought in those kinds of terminology, the last two centuries, kind of thought in in those kinds of terms is, hey, this is about what we're supposed to be relating to God with. And I'm just suggesting not a bad way to read the Song of Solomon. Now, let me quick turn the corner because I want to spend some time here today. Y'all remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well? Almost all of us remember that. 
and you all will remember she's she's at the well, she's drawing water. Jesus asked for some water. It's all a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful wonder. So I'm going to assume you know the story. If you don't, just turn this thing off and go read the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And I think you'll be obviously blessed by that. You can find it in the fourth chapter of John. But I'm going to assume you know the story, so I'm not going to go all that into it. But first off, the Samaritan thing is pretty interesting. In 722 BC, 722 years before Christ, the Assyrian Empire conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Now remember, after Solomon, there becomes a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The kingdom is divided. 10 northern tribes, 2 southern tribes. And in 722, those 10 northern tribes were scattered amongst the Gentile nations because the Syrian Empire conquered them. And they replaced them with people from Babylon and uh, some other places. Uh, these people obviously didn't fear the Lord. And so Second Kings actually named seven gods, but two of the seven were female. So there were five male deities, actually seven overall, but five male deities. And then, because they also served Yahweh, so the Samaritans are going to go with these deities, five male deities, and then Yahweh. Now, I want you to think about that in light of this story. Five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. The one you're with now has been mixed up with the five other ones, which is syncretism, which is, is that's not really Yahweh either even though Yahweh, you think you're worse. Fascinating stuff. So let, let me get back to this. The Samaritans did eventually come to worship the God of Israel, but continue to worship their own gods as well. That's what we call syncretism, all right? The, the, the right faith mixed in with some other faiths. When Jesus says, the one you are with now is not your husband, could he in the bigger picture been signifying that that one was Yahweh, but not the true Yahweh? Because again, as we've already suggested, <laughs> That Yahism, Yahwehism has been tainted by the influence of the worship of false gods. So later the Samaritans would eventually accept the books of Moses as scripture, but built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So for the Jews, they became a people of mixed blood, of a rival syncretistic religion with a different place for worship. All reasons why you didn't like them very much. Now, there's a guy that leads uh, tours in Israel. Uh, named Jim Fleming. And, and Jim talks about, uh, it just gives you an idea about how much these people didn't like each other. If you were a Jew and went to Samaria and went to a Samaritan business and you'd say, hey, listen, uh, give me some bread over there and, uh, um, and uh, I, want, I want some water if you don't mind. All right, bread and water, there you go. And you'd reach into your pocket and pull out some coins. Because they didn't want to touch, the Samaritans didn't want to touch your dirty, filthy, Jewish germs, they'd make you plop your money down into water. Then they'd fish it out of the water again, so they wouldn't have to deal with your germs. That's how much Samaritans didn't like Jews and Jews didn't like Samaritans. By the way, when you walked away from that business, the Samaritan would come behind you and put leaves or straw and, and try to burn away your filthy sandal germs off of his property. I mean, these listen, there is, there is no, hey, welcome, the Chamber of Commerce of Samaria welcomes you to our place on the map. Nothing like that. 
there are no warm feelings between Jews and Samaritans. So with that understanding, let me give you the rundown of the story real quick. Jesus in the preceding paragraph, by the way, you had the wedding of Cana, remember? And then he's been called the bridegroom and John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom. So you've got all these nuptial marriage stories and perspectives coming in. Now we're into our third major perspective. Jesus' and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. Jesus sat by Jacob's well while the disciples journeyed into Sychar to get food. It was about noon, and the Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. So Jesus, at that point, broke three Jewish customs. First, he spoke to her, even though she was a woman. Second, spoke to her, even though she was a despised Samaritan. Remember, no love lost between these groups of people. Third, she asked for a drink of water. Although whatever she touches is ceremonially unclean. So if she hands him something, he's going to be unclean. Jesus is. It doesn't look like Jesus cares about any one of those three customs. Woman is shocked. Jesus proceeds to tell her that he could give her living water as a gift. So she'd never thirst again. Jesus puts it this way. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, the Samaritan woman didn't fully understand what in the world he's even talking about. So Jesus reveals, hey, by the way, I know you've got five husbands, and you're now living with a man who's not your husband. Get back to those five gods and Yahweh not her husband, she's startled. Sir, you must be a prophet. So Jesus and the woman discussed their views on worship, and the woman voiced her belief that the Messiah was coming. Jesus answered, I who speak to you am he. So at that point, the disciples return, and they're shocked. They're shocked to find him speaking to a woman. The woman returned to town, inviting the people to come, and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, I want you to know, uh, and I said this in the last uh, last uh, podcast, get this book, Brant Petra's book, Jesus the Bridegroom, the greatest love story ever told. For this and other tremendous perspectives, I think you will love it. But let me share with you what looks like to be going on in this story. This story, I think, ought to be seen through the lens of Jesus and the marriage metaphor, the nuptial metaphor. And if it does, it takes on a whole larger significance. So let's investigate. The woman in story looks curiously like a bride as you investigate certain elements. In the Bible, it frequently happens that when a male foreigner sees a woman at a well, there is a betrothal. Marriage is out ahead of you. Now, how do we know this? Moses meets his future bride at a, at a well. Read about it in Exodus 2. In Genesis 24, a servant of Abraham finds a bride for Isaac at a well. In Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Notice some interesting parallels here. Just as Moses, Abraham's servant, and Jacob are male foreigners in a strange land, so Jesus is a foreigner on Samaritan soil. And just as Abraham's servant asks Rebekah for a drink of water to find out if she's the bride, if she's the one, so Jesus asks the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. 
And as Jacob encounters Rachel at the well at high noon or midday, so too Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the sixth hour, which, by the way, is noon. Now, we read the story and we kind of miss the context. My goodness, look, look. She's a bride here and he's the bridegroom here. But the disciples got it. They didn't miss the context. So when they return, they marvel and wonder, why is he talking to her? Although the disciples are sometimes dense, they know Jewish scripture well enough to figure out, hey, this is the kind of encounter between a man and a woman that usually leads to a wedding. Now, what we're going to find out is not a wedding like we understand wedding, but the wedding between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the whole group of Samaritans, which is to say, Jesus, the bridegroom, and all of us who stand as the Samaritans in this story. Let's keep going here. Today, as then, when a man gives a single woman a gift, whoo, you've done it for a reason. I remember when I did it with my wife. Some of you who are married, remember that day. What an exciting day. Usually it's jewelry. I mean, Rebecca receives a gold ring and two bracelets from Isaac, Genesis 24. Jesus offers jewelry? No. He offers living water. The woman wants this living water. Now, living water was a way to say running water. There's about three or four different perspectives here, so let me share with them one by one. First off, living water is another way to say running water. She might be interested in that kind of water, so she won't have to keep coming back to the well. <laughs> so, so ancient Jewish tradition taught in an expanded treatment of Jacob and Rachel's well narrative that the still water of the well was made into running water for the next 20 years. The woman might have been referring to this in John 4, 11 to 12. Living water was also referred to as ritual water for cleansing and purification in the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. In fact, living water was associated with the custom of a Jewish bride undergoing a ritual bath before her wedding. And the Song of Solomon, the bride on her wedding day, could be seen as a beautiful, beautiful dynamic of this when they're talking about a fountain and a well of living water in Songs chapter 4. So yeah, this whole ritual bathing, which by the way, kind of sounds like baptism, doesn't it? Now, when living water is seen in reference to Jesus, this passage is really interesting. If anyone thirsts, says Jesus, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. So here's the fourth great possible teaching of living water. In the context of John's gospel, Jesus is the source of living water. And recall that water flows from the pierced side of Jesus on the cross. Now, could it mean one of those things or perhaps all of them put together? Now, go ahead and tell you, my vote is all of them put together. Now, Here's some possible lessons out of all this. God wants to wed himself, not only to the Jews, but to non-Jewish believers as well. So this isn't a wedding between Jesus and the Samaritan woman as she stands alone. No, this is a marriage between Jesus and the Samaritan people. 
And God wants to wed himself not only to the Jewish people, but to those right now that have other gods in a syncretistic religion that worship other places who we hate and who hate us. Yes, God wants to have a wedding between himself and them too. Now remember, Zipporah went home to their pagan father Jethro, told him all about Moses at the well. Read about it in Exodus 2. Rachel runs home from the well to tell her family about Jacob so they might invite him to stay with them. Read about that in Genesis 29. So the Samaritan woman does what? She runs to her kinsman, runs back into town, and tells him about this Jesus and invites him to stay with them. This this can't be a mistake, y'all. So here's the implications. Here are the implications. Jesus sets up well experiences for people and gets them ready by his grace that goes before all evangelistic experiences. But basically, Jesus wants marriage. He is the bridegroom, and he wants the church to be his bride, and he wants to make the pre-churched, the unchurched, into the church for that marriage. No matter the gods of our past and the complications and chaos of our life today, Jesus still wants to be our bridegroom. He wants intimacy with us. By the way, with us, he wants you to have intimacy, not just with your family, not just with your wife, but people beyond that. And I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about the holy intimacy that he wants to bring to every single one of our lives. He wants to bring intimacy to your church, those within your church, but also those beyond your church. What my church says is, listen, we want to run to the sound of the pain. Wherever there's pain, let's find ourselves in the middle of it. Wherever there's chaos, let's find ourselves in the middle of it. But now what we can say, because we're learning all this stuff with you all on the podcast, we can say, hey, let's get in the middle of it and let's arrange a wedding ceremony. <laughs> and by the way, that, but by the way, the next podcast, whoo we it's going to set us up for that. Finally, this intimacy with God comes through the living water of Jesus. Finally, Jesus is the living water. And y'all, whatever happened on the cross, at least one of the things that happened was water came forth. For who? You got to believe it was for you and for me. Man, oh man, oh man. I think if you took the, the, the two passages we're talking about today, the Song of Songs and the Woman at the Well passage, you could put together a seminar. You could put together a Sunday school lesson. You could put together a discipleship lesson, a small group lesson that'll rock your people's world. But don't let it rock their world before it rock, rocks your world. Hey, God wants to be married to you. Wow. All right, it's a wrap. Been an honor to have you listening to Life Changing Discipleship with Matt Friedman today. Check out our Facebook page, Life Changing Discipleship, and check out our books at Amazon.com, including and especially that book, The 5Q Method of Discipleship Five Questions That Will Change Your Life. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life Changing Discipleship today. So we want you to love God, live clean, keep the faith. God bless you, my dear friends. 
And remember always, always to make disciples. We'll see you back here real soon.